This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Tara Beth Leach, welcome to Viral Jesus. I come in, I'm the first female pastor, um, and it was immediately a very gendered experience in that a lot of people left because of my gender, a lot. Um, 600 people. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. I wrote an article for Newsweek titled, Americans No Longer Trust the Church, the Government, or Even Big Money. Is There a New Power Rising? In this article, I talk about some of the Gallup research that was done in 2019 that found that in 1975, 68% of Americans believed that organized religion could be trusted. And in 1985, organized religion was the most revered institution among the list of institutions Gallup tracked. However, something happens by 2019. We see a switch where by 2019, only 36% of people say they have confidence in their church leadership. Remember that in 1975, 68% of people said that they trust the church. But by 2019, that number is down to 36%. Our guest today is someone who wants to bring us back to the basics of church witness, Tara Beth Leach. Tara Beth Leach is a pastor, preacher of the word, and writer. She speaks widely at conferences, retreats, and universities across America on women in ministry, church leadership, and the call to be a radiant witness. She is a pastor at Christ Church of Oak Brook in the western suburbs of Chicago. She is the author of Emboldened, and her latest book is called Radiant Church, Restoring the Credibility of Our Witness. So Tara Beth, something I like to do when people come on the show is stalk their social media accounts for a little bit. And so I went through your Twitter and I want to read to you something that you said and just ask for your feedback or reaction to it. You say this, being undone, I've learned, is the space in which God meets us. Ugly cries, sure, but also holy ones. Through the blur of tears and ocean of healing, grace drenches our weary souls. Don't be afraid to be undone. It's there we see the holiest one. Mm. And I, I love that just because we were just talking before we got on, but it just seems like everything in life feels undone right now for so many people. So I was hoping you could just speak into that for a second. For so much of my life, I have felt like I've got to have it be together, have it all together mm. for everyone else, for my family. Um, I carried for years an unnecessary burden that I've got to be the woman in ministry that's, that, that I need to not fail um, so I don't screw it up for the rest or, um, you know, just so terrified of being undone, so terrified of being unguarded, so terrified of failure. And what I've learned through the years is the holiest and hardest lesson is that when we become undone before a holy and vulnerable God, um, it is there that we are fully open and surrendered, um, fully, mm -hmm. fully naked um, before God. Those are the, some of the most tender moments. Um, they're the wilderness moments, yes. Uh, 
but they're the most tender moments um, that I've learned in my walk with Jesus. I love that. I was talking to a friend this morning about having to do the whole looking for endorsements for my next book. And I was just like, oh, I hate this process. It gives me so much anxiety. I don't know how to, I just don't like having to ask people for things. It feels so user-ish, you know? And she was just saying to me, you know, let's be grateful that we have experiences that make us feel so vulnerable, like that remind us that we are so small and drive us to our knees, Right, which is kind of what I hear you saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. We all have those moments. And um, if if there's a moment that brings us to our knees before God, um, then it must be a redeemable moment. Mm. moment. That was really heavy. (laughs) So I'm sitting with that for a second. And you know, I, people are going through things right now that feel so unredeemable. Oh, totally. And so how do we respond to that yeah. as Christians Yeah. when people say, the worst thing has just happened to my family? Yeah. How can you say that God can redeem this? Yeah. Yeah. And I think we often think about redeem as fixing, um, mm. fixing what was broken and um, making it how it used to be. But in the kingdom of God, we see, you know, resurrection even being different. Resurrection isn't what it was. It's new. It's the new wineskins. And I even think about uh, the, the, the community of the Beatitudes who sit at the table of Jesus. You know, Jesus sets this table and he says, everyone who sits at this table is in my kingdom and they're blessed. And everyone who's at the table are those who are suffering, they're persecuted, they're mourning, they're Mm. meek, um, you know, they're righteous, and yet they're blessed. And so the the redemption of that is is not that the, the blessing erases the suffering, but it's that we can actually learn in God's economy to hold both at the same time, that we can suffer, and yet somehow in that suffering and pain and loss and agony, we can experience blessing, which is wild mm. and so upside down. But that's the kind of kingdom that we're invited into. You recently wrote a book called Radiant Church, Restoring the Credibility of Our Witness. Tell us about that book. Yeah, so I wrote that book in 2019 before I had any idea what was going to unfold in 2020 and 2021 and all of the chaos that we all know that we have all lived. And even in 2019, my heart, I was a local church pastor. My heart was so wildly burdened uh, over what I was seeing in the state of evangelicalism and um, the way Christians were behaving. Um and the public witness. And so, um, you know, like many other Christians, we're looking around, we're like, something's not right here. Like something's, something's off. And that feeling of things not being right in the water wasn't just out of nowhere. It wasn't a 2019, 2016 phenomenon, but it had been something that had a, a deep root system, a decaying toxic root system that had built uh, or that grown kind of this this tree with bad fruit. And so my hope in writing Radiant Church was to address some of those toxic roots that we, or that toxic soil that we've rooted ourselves in um, without fully tearing down, you know, the, the, the church, um, you know, because for me as a pastor, yeah. um, I love the church. Yeah. Um, and I love the church because I love Jesus and Jesus loves the church. How do we do that? Because this is the question. And I just went to dinner with a former student the other day. And I was trying to decide as we were sitting there, should I bring it up? Should I ask her 
if she's a part of a church right now, because she has gone away now to graduate school and ended up asking and she was like, oh no, I'm not. Yep. She's, she literally said, I don't want any of that bad communication to be associated with yeah. me. Right. And I tried to push a little bit just because I, I totally understand what she's saying, but also we have to have community. That's right. So how are we seeking these positive spaces of community? As a pastor, how are you navigating this burden that I'm sure many of your members are experiencing? And then on top of that, it's not even just like the bad communication and the toxic theology. Yeah. We also have a literal pandemic yeah. where some people have just stopped going and now it's hard to get back in the saddle. How do you handle all of this? Yeah, well, I think there's you know so many different layers to that, and I certainly can't solve it all now. But you know, from my perspective, um, when it comes to the, the bad communication um, or what you know what we call a witness, um, there are many people, um, in particular older generations, in particular probably a lot of boomers um, that are really lamenting that their children and their grandchildren um, are no longer attending church. Um, I'm a millennial, and I'm lamenting that same thing. But what we've done um, that is not working is we've often pointed the finger outward. Yeah. Why are they coming? What's what's happening with the decay of society? Um, but what we're not getting is that it actually has everything to do with us. Yeah. And so, so before uh, we can start begging people to come back to church, which by the way, I'm all about evangelism. I'm all about like I'm. Uh, praying for my neighbors right now that I've been having conversations with. Uh, but simultaneously, we've really got to have some serious conversations about our witness, um, about what the world sees when they see us. Um, because as the phrase goes, uh, you can't fool the kids and we cannot fool the world. Um, they can sniff it out before we can. And um, currently our witness um, um, doesn't... Uh, doesn't reflect Jesus, I think, in the ways that we would hope it would. And, you know, I think when the pandemic began, um, you know, for me, I'm an Enneagram six, by the way. So like when the pandemic began, I was like, I'm ready for this. Like, let's go. Like, you know, sixes are always ready for crisis. <laughs> and so, um, and, and I thought, this is it. This is the moment that the church is finally going to get it together. Like we're going to shine. And I remember just thinking like as a pastor, you know, I'm like, let's rally together people. Like this is our moment. We're going to shine and we are going to be the church that God has called us to be. And I know we went backwards. Mm. Um, we didn't go forward, but we went like way back. I mean, we like backslid, tumbled down the hill, dirt on our faces um, while fighting on the way down, by the way. And so we've got to talk about our witness. Um, you know, the second thing, the COVID pandemic thing with, with people um, not wanting to come back, I think churches just, we need to figure out new ways of connecting with people. And I'm all for the hybrid approach mm -hmm. of offering um, live stream, but, but finding ways to make it engaging and connecting. And I think we've got to realize that that ministry in church doesn't happen in an hour on Sunday mornings that, yeah, that we yeah. be out in the neighborhood and on mission. How do you think social media impacts this witness that we're trying to restore? Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think? Has it hurt it? Has it helped it? It's so hurt it. Um, <laughs> it is so hurt it, which is so wild. I'm on social media. I have Instagram. I have, you know, Twitter, Facebook. I haven't dabbled in TikTok, but I'm thinking about it. <laughs> I just started a TikTok and I have like 22 views and I'm like, I'm done with this. <laughs> <Turn it down. laughs> 
I love watching TikTok. It's so it is so good. It's like die laughing at night. Like my husband and I pass the phone back and forth. Look at this one. <laughs> just like dying. Like, but but yeah, um, you know, so social media, whew, um, so I re- I reflect back on my social media engagement, for example since let's say 2012. 2012 is when I started to really um, have a burden for a lot of different things. Um, Gender dynamics, power dynamics, race, women in ministry, um, all of that, even politics play, you know, within the church. And it really started to come a lot. And I used to be super engaged on social media um, on that. Um, Really, really active. And through the years that it has had its been just really waning and declining um, because as a local church pastor with also, yes, I realize like I have a public voice um, that I feel very much called to steward. Uh, but as a local church pastor, one of the things I'm learning is I just don't see the needle moving um, mm. with with just this back and forth. And I will say it's probably more so Facebook. Uh, Facebook okay. is a scary, scary, scary world for me yeah, um, yeah. as a pastor. And um, I used to post so frequently, but then, but then on Twitter, it feels like often an echo chamber yeah. uh, for me because everyone I follow and follows me on Twitter, like <laughs> we're all saying the same stuff. And Twitter is where all the pastors go, where they don't want their congregants to see that they're tweeting. <laughs> Pat ourselves on the back. Yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, I remember in 2012, um, I think it was 2012. Um, it was after the, I think McKinney, Texas, or McKinley, Texas, when when the police officer grabbed the 16-year-old by the hair. Do you remember that? Yeah. That's when I really started engaging online. And um, it was horrible. And it's been years of that, you know. And mm-hmm, I, what I re- mm-hmm. saw it doing is just creating this crevasse of us and them. And it's just growing. Yeah. And what I have found is the, the work where I'm able to see the needle move um, is in the, the, in, unfortunately in person, let's do a book study. Let's talk about this. Let's wrestle with this. Um, and so it's, it's not that I, obviously social media has its place and I'm probably going to tweet something or say something again someday. That's going to make a lot of people mad. And I'm going to obsess about it for hours with a stomach ache. <laughs> um, but yeah, all that to say, I think that this growing crevasse is is enlarged because it's social media. You were a senior pastor at the First Church of the Nazarene. Talk to me a bit about your experiences as a female yeah. senior pastor and as someone who wrote a book like Emboldened. Yeah. So <laughs> I had written Emboldened actually before I became the senior pastor. It was released uh, afterwards, a few months after, but you know, when the writing process, like you start writing and then two years later it's, re- right. it's released. And so um, it was super controversial. Um, I remember that was the first time I started yeah. seeing a lot about you. People really were coming after you yes. during that bus. So, and it was just bad timing. Well, I don't know. It was, it was just kind of the perfect storm. So I come in, I'm the first female pastor. Um, and it was immediately a very gendered experience in that a lot of people left because of my gender a lot. Um, mm. 600 people. Okay. So 600 people leave because of my gender and it, that became the thing. And um, then this book releases and there was already a lot of fear. So within evangelicalism, when you're a female pastor, there's this fear that 
because she's a female, she must be liberal. And she, you know, she must then live, exist within this box and believe these things. And so my book like exacerbated that in that, whoa, like now we've called a feminist and, and she's making it about women in ministry and she's, you know, um, platforming herself just to get her feminist agenda out there. And so it was, it was really the perfect and difficult and very painful storm. Um, so, um, and at the same time, it helped a lot of people. And I know that, and I'm thankful for that. And it was, it was controversial and I'm sad because I loved that church very much. And I, at the end of the day, I just wanted to pastor them and shepherd them. Um, and I'm sad that it became that, but, um, Mm. yeah. Have you ever had experiences though, where because of your gender, somebody's able to see Christ in a way they haven't seen him before. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was one of the many beautiful things, many, many beautiful things that we saw happen at Paznaz. The amount of people that came because there was a female pastor or that way they were checking us out online and listening to the sermons. And they thought like, Oh, I've never heard of female or, and they were drawn in or someone would come to me and say, I have never heard a woman woman talk about the Magnificat or Mary, or I've never heard this from a, a woman's perspective. And I was like, and it wasn't just women; it was, it was men and women that would right. say that. And so, so we we saw just the many wonderful fruits of the other side of that as well. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, You partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. I just want to say my husband is grew up with a single mother and has really struggled just because of the nature of some of the things from his father, abuse and addiction. He's always struggled um, with relationships with men. And so he has just been somebody that always says to me, like, people don't realize how many people couldn't hear <laughs> it if it wasn't coming from a woman because you don't trust right. men. And I have female students. I've had a female student tell me, Dr. Day, I've been molested by every single male I yeah. know. Yeah. And so we have to have spaces have to. with female leadership. There's so many people who need it because the gospel's that yeah. good. How are we going to miss it based on the messenger? I think that that's a, a very big mistake. That's right. That's right. We need we need both voices. Um, yeah. We need both. That's a picture of the kingdom is women and men uh, co-laboring together. 
Um, yes. I love the way Carolyn Custis James always puts it. And when she calls it the blessed alliance, that's what it is. It's the blessed alliance yes. of, of togetherness. And, you know, often when I'm talking about women in ministry, it's often heard as canceling men um, or pushing aside. Right. But I'm, but for, for me, it's, it's about, first of all, it's about the mission of God. Um, it's not about like, we need to have 50% of women in the pulpit and 50% of men, you know, in the pulpit. Um, but instead it's, it's, it's about a beautiful, blessed as Carolyn Custis James put, puts it partnership for the mission of God. Um, and if it's, if it's for the mission of God, for the glory of God, for the kingdom, then, then it's, it's not one or the other, but it's both and it's both of us. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a bit about your relationship with God and the spiritual journey that he's taken you on. In what areas of your spiritual life are you still growing and are you still changing? Yeah, I love that question. So since moving back to Illinois, you know, my, my move back to Illinois was a difficult one. Um, we, we never thought that we would leave Pasadena. I mean, moved back so I could care for my father who had stage four cancer, who recently died in July. I'm sorry. Thank you. And my mom, who has a, just a terrible, cruel disease uh, as well in caring for her. And so it's, you know, it kind of goes back to that feeling of being undone. And the journey that God is bringing me on is the safety of being undone. And that, mm. you know, being undone means I have limitations. That's good. That's that's great. And learning that what those limitations are and accepting them. Um, being undone means not knowing what five years from now is going to look like, but it's embracing the liminality that I'm that I'm walking in and learning to put one faithful step in front of the next. And um, another beautiful thing that God has just been doing in me is just the simple, simple joy that God has been restoring the joy of my salvation. Um, in the mornings when I rise, I wake up at 4.45 a.m. and just delight to be in the Lord's presence. Um, and that's for me right now for my season. I don't I don't think any, everybody needs to wake up at that time. That's just where God has me right now, of, of being able to just delight in the simple presence of God. Well, it's not simple. Um, <laughs> of just this, you know, just the the act of being still. And um, it's been such a good and holy time. And the nurturing that that God does in me during that time, again, of learning to be undone. What's your hope? What is your greatest hope right now? What's your hope for the church, the hope for the future of your own ministry? Yeah. My hope is that through this next season of ministry of church that I think that we're going to go through is, is as we're watching a crumbling of sorts of power and of decentering of major voices and centering the voices of the marginalized is that we as the church would go through that transition with grace and gratitude and hopefulness um, and I know it's a utopian one because what have we seen in the past is that when, when power is decentered, there's just a lot of fighting for it and it's, it gets ugly, but yeah, I continue to be a prisoner of hope that as this transition happens, um, that as the signs of spring emerge, um, coming from voices that we may not always, haven't always been familiar with or hearing from, um, that it would 
that it would be a beautiful witness of, of the church that Jesus prayed for in the garden, of the church that Jesus preached about in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and I think it's, it's not going to be easy. I think it's going to be years of difficult and hard times. Um, I don't think that things are going to get easier. I, and mm-hmm. I don't claim to be a prophet. That's just my gut. Like, I just, I don't yeah. think things are going to be easier. And so through this maybe separating of sorts that we're seeing is I'm hopeful that the new expression of the church that we're going to see is going to be so good and beautiful and one that is going to be remembered for generations upon generations. I love that. That's my hope too. I'm doing a new thing this season where I ask people online if they would were able to sit down with you, what questions would they ask? And I have so many, so many really thoughtful questions for you. Um, K33Smith says, how would you encourage a woman who wants to be in ministry? Yeah. So one of the greatest lessons that God has taught me as a woman in ministry is to think about it incrementally and that mm. take the next faithful step. Because oftentimes for women who feel called into ministry, it can feel so daunting and overwhelming. Um, And I I don't know about you, but a lot of the women that I find that are called into ministry don't often have the path that I took. Meaning I felt a call as 16 years old, got like a bachelor's of divinity, went to seminary. And I'm finding a lot of women that are called into ministry realize it in their 30s Mm. um, or beyond 40s and 50s. And so it can often feel like, oh, like, how do I go back? But What's that next faithful step? The next faithful step might be sign up for a seminary class, check it out, or call a seminary, go to you know a seminary missions. The next faithful step might be finding a woman in ministry and say, I know this is like out of nowhere, but can we have a Zoom call? Or the next faithful step might be talking to your pastor, or the next faithful step might be writing a sermon in the mm-hmm. privacy of your own room and practicing it and seeing what, what happens. What's one faithful step that you can do? And then after that, what's the next faithful step you can do? I love that. Jacqueline Fisher asked, the last few years have been tumultuous. How should church position itself in regard to what real people are experiencing every day? How should churches change to meet the needs of what's happening right now? What should remain steady and unchanged in this storm? Yeah, we've got to learn how, and this is so complex and difficult, but we've got to learn how to center those voices of what the real people are feeling and experiencing. And one of the things I talk about in Radiant Church is as learning a new way of corporate examination. Um, and that corporate exam, you know, oftentimes we think of the prayer exam where I go and I'm alone and I reflect and I, you know, ask for the Lord to reveal anything in me that is sinful, which is a good practice, by the way. Um, but corporate examine would mean like, yes, asking the Lord anything within ourselves that is, that is sinful and that is broken and that is unholy or that is dark. Um, but doing that through listening to the voices of real hurting marginalized people and voices um, and trusting that the voice of the Lord is speaking through them and helping reveal to us as the church um, where that brokenness is so that we can lament, confess, and repent. Nathan Sutliff asks, what role do you see denominations playing in the next 50 years? Yeah, that's a really great great question. I wish I knew. Um (laughs) So, and I say that because, uh, so the tribe that I'm a part of, Church of the Nazarene, is in a lot of trouble. Um, 
pastors, young pastors my age are leaving in droves. Um, and I know that's not just my denomination. I know it's happening across the board. You know, Barna just recently came out with a study that, you know, it had risen um, some like 11% um, in the last year of those who are leaving uh, ministry. And so, you know, the great resignation is hitting the church big time. And we're seeing that within denominations. And I think what's happening is denominations aren't adapting well to the changing um, context, to the changing context of mission, to the changing context of the way young people are operating and thinking about church and ministry. And so I would be really surprised if, you know, the amount of denominations that we have today are all still here in the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're going to continue to see a shaking out and um, it will be very interesting to see who's left. I really like this one. Right underscore and underscore seek says, who were the people you saw doing ministry well that shaped your own ministry? Yeah, I think of Janice Rubin. She worked at a church that I worked at in Naperville and she was a mom who um, kids were in high school and she looked at the church and she said, we need something for our kids. And um, she got in there, started off as a volunteer, and then they paid her, you know, 10, 10 hours a week, and they kept expanding it to where she became family life director. And the way she did ministry, I will never forget. Um, I ended up working for her as one of her staff. And every time we'd have a meeting, I'd, you know, I'd come to her home and she would say, okay, we're going to make cookies while we talk. And the way her, the, her ministry style was, was so unconventional for me. Because I had always, you know, done ministry with these men, you know, where it was just, it was, we we have meetings in a boardroom mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we'll do a breakfast maybe at 6 a.m. And it was so unconventional. Like we never had a meeting where she, she didn't feed someone or make you just feel like you were having warm chicken soup. I believe it's that, not that you have to make cookies or feed people, but I do think it's that going to be that unconventional way of doing mm. ministry that we are going to see in the future thrive and flourish. Kindle underscore Joe says, Tara Beth spoke at a revival when I was in college and I loved her book, Emboldened. How do we go about having healthy conversations with those that have turned away from the church when all they see is the church being political, not welcoming over the last few years? Yeah. You know, I think sometimes the temptation is to make some sort of cognitive proposition where we want to convince them. Um, that the church is, you know, for them. But really what they need the most is for us to sit with them, to lament with them, to cry with them, and for them Mm. to be seen. I teach persuasion. And just so you know, that's exactly what we would say in persuasion, (laughs) that um, essentially arguments never persuade people. It's whether or not we just feel loved by you. If I feel liked by you, if I feel seen by you, now you can speak into my life. Yeah. Tara Beth Leach is the author of Radiant Church, Restoring the Credibility of Our Witness. This book is so important and super timely, and you can get it wherever books are sold. Tara Beth, I want to end each interview that I've been doing by asking my guest this question. It's going to sound heavy, okay? But I promise it's just simple answers. But this show is called Viral Jesus for a Reason. And virtually all credible historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, agree that there is plenty of evidence that a man named Jesus actually lived and walked this earth to thousand years ago. How can we now 2000 years later best communicate who Jesus was and what his mission is today? For 2022, 
what we need most is a humble church that would be willing to say, I think we've gotten a lot wrong in the last many decades. And here's what I think we got wrong. And here's where I think we need to lament. And here's where we need to sit in that and confess and repent um, and then move towards the hopefulness of resurrection. Thanks, Tara Beth Leach, for joining us for this episode. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral, and this is where I give you some direct strategies you can implement into your real life that will help you be a better communicator and connector both online and off. Here is your Growing Viral homework. I want to tell you a story about a former student of mine named Adam. I was teaching a small group communication course for Purdue University, and I created this game called Black, White, and Gray. I would read to the students a controversial statement, and if they fully agreed, then they'd stand on the black side. If they disagreed, they'd stand on the white side. And if they were neutral, they would stand in the middle in the gray zone. It then became the task of the people on the white side and the black side of the argument to persuade the person in the gray to move to their position. So I read several controversial statements and one of them was, I believe that there is an intelligent designer. I purposely said intelligent design because there has been a movement in science towards intelligent design and I thought it would be less controversial than making students argue about definitely Jesus Christ or God. Well, to my shock, Every single person in the room went to stand on the white side, which said, I totally disagree with this statement. Every single person except one who stood in the neutral in the gray zone. And I never imagined, honestly, that my entire class would be atheist or agnostic enough to stand saying, I don't agree with this at all. And I honestly immediately started to feel bad because it became the task of those people on that side of the room to convince the single person in the gray to move over to their position saying there is no God or there is no intelligent designer. And I didn't want to insert my own bias into the discussion because I hadn't for any of the other statements. But I watched as the spokesperson that was selected for their group was Adam. And Adam essentially said that he used to be a Christian and he no longer believed in God or an intelligent designer. He said essentially, actually, that if there is a God, we have a massive problem because God then condones and allows evil. So I wanted to rebuttal, but I felt the Holy Spirit whisper to me, you know what, Heather, don't say anything. And so I didn't. And throughout the semester, that same student, Adam, would stay after class and chat with me. He was dating someone, and so we'd talk about that. And then eventually, he proposed to her. And so we would talk about that. And he knew I was a Christian. I'd mentioned it, but he never asked me any questions about God. And I never gave him a Bible study or a PowerPoint or a sermon. Well, on the last day of class, I'm gathering my stuff. And Adam walks up to me. This is a true story. And he says, Dr. Day, I just want you to know that if there is a God, I hope it's yours. And he just kind of smiles at me and walks out of the room. I wanted to create Viral Jesus because I know the impact of church witness. I know what happens when people don't just preach their faith or tweet their faith, but they actually live it out when people take ownership of their communication. I'm somebody that believes that God is still attractive. I believe that if He be lifted up, He will draw all people to Himself. Your homework this week isn't to give a Bible study or share a sermon. I just want you to be kind. 
I want you to display integrity. I want you to display justice. I want you to show mercy and love and humility. I want us to realize that our witness is not just what happens when we are on stages or with microphones. It is also how we treat people in our everyday lives. May we live a life, friend, where even those who don't believe will look at us and say, man, if there is a God, I hope it's yours. I hope it's yours. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Next week, we talk to a personal friend of mine, Dante Stewart. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a Viral Jesus guest talks. And you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.